And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Good morning and welcome to The Real Investment Show. It's Memorial Day. I'm your host, Science Roberts, and we've got a whole collection of segments for you to review today. You know, we're not actually live today. We're on tape. But if you close your eyes and just sit back and listen, you won't even know the difference. But with that said, let's get right into it. Well, I took my wife out to dinner last night. Yeah. And uh, nice dinner. Very busy. Oh, right? yes. Lots of people back out mm. now. Right? Everybody's celebrating. It's nuts. So, yeah. So, I mean, economy's definitely coming back. But interestingly <laughs> enough, right, we saw on Friday a job report that was a bit disappointing, right? It was expected we were going to create over a million jobs. Morgan Stanley had 1.25 million jobs uh, estimated for Friday's employment report. Came in just a little over 200,000. Of course, big disappointment there, uh, naturally, of course, as everybody was expecting a lot more. And this has put a lot of concerns into, uh, of course, the outlook for the economy as well as what the Fed's going to do. And interestingly enough, one of the bylines of this is that where the jobs were created were exactly where you would expect them to be, right? In leisure and hospitality, right? That was the largest area of job increases in that 200,000 job, uh, 200, job number. Now, it wasn't just the fact that, you know, Friday's employment report was weak. Last month, the month of March was also revised down as well, not nearly as strong as was expected. Of course, this brings up a lot of the conversations that we've had here lately. And of course, now we're starting to see this in the data that, well, maybe these extended unemployment benefits that we're doing are keeping people from going back to work, especially if they get more in unemployment than they actually do working. They're opting to stay at home. Now, I know that's shocking. I mean, most people would expect that individuals would much rather work than stay at home and be paid to do nothing. But, you know, just in reality, uh, you know, humans sometimes do things that don't make any sense at all. And this is one of the problems with a lot of economic theory. I'm writing an article right now. Paul Krugman out uh, in the media last week doing an interview with uh, Business Insider. And, uh, of course, uh, discussing the fact that we just need to do bigger. We just need to do more deficit spending because that'll solve the problem. Well, we've been doing we've been running a national deficit since 2009 of, of, of between 500 and a trillion dollars. Now we're approaching, you know, three and four trillion dollars on our deficit and things aren't really improving. So it doesn't really suggest that more deficit spending is solving the problem. And it certainly doesn't suggest that, you know, paying people to sit at home is working as well. In fact, the Chamber of Commerce has now actually sent a letter to the Biden administration saying, hey, let's stop paying people to stay at home. We need people to get back to work. If you want to create a job recovery, if you want to create an economic recovery, and this is basic economics, people have to produce first. They have to go to work and produce something, create a paycheck, then they can consume. And that's what creates organic economic growth long term. But of course, this is something that's, that's been really missed here over the last decade as we've shifted more and more towards socialistic policies. You know, uh, sending checks to households is sounds great in theory, but in actuality, it doesn't create the outcome that you would expect. Recycling tax dollars 
doesn't create more organic economic growth. So this is one of the things that we're going to be challenged with here as we go forward is trying to balance this idea of you know, letting economics work as they should and getting people back to work ultimately. And then at some point, you've got to remove the support levels to a degree that encourages people to go get a job because once they go back to work, they start producing. That's where you create economic growth. And surprisingly enough, that's also where you create tax revenue that also supports your social welfare system, et cetera. So, and speaking of social welfare, um, because of all these handouts that we're now giving out, social benefits as a percent of disposable incomes. Now, this is the income that people have left over after they actually work and create a paycheck, pay their taxes, what's left over to spend, right? That's their disposable income. Well, social benefits now make up 42% of the average disposable income, right? So government handouts are now making up over 40% of what people are, have to spend on a disposable income basis. So it just kind of goes to show you how we've kind of skewed things to a large degree. And again, when you look at really what's happening with wage growth, wage growth, you know, it showed a little bit of a pickup last month, but is weakening overall as people start to go back to work. Despite the fact right now we've got a labor shortage um, because of the, so many people sitting out on, on, on sidelines, we're seeing wage growth in lower end wage workers, such as service workers, uh, restaurant workers, et cetera. But in your upper and, and middle and upper end of income earners, those wages actually still remain suppressed here because again, there's still some bargaining power at those levels. Okay, quick thing here before we get back to, uh, you know, other topics this morning, of course, uh, Elon Musk on Saturday Night Live over the weekend, everybody very excited because he was going to maybe say something about doggy coin. Yes, it's doggy coin. That's why there's a dog on the front of it. But <laughs> um, Dogecoin has been running rapidly here over the last couple of weeks. People are very excited about it. And of course, Elon Musk has been tweeting about it. So is Mark Cuban. And of course, this coin, this is a coin that actually has no benefit, no purpose, no support whatsoever. It was created as a joke, and yet everybody's buying it. Kind of shows you where we are within the current market cycle. Well, <clears throat> Elon Musk, I guess you would say bombed, maybe. I mean, it, it wasn't the, the skits were pretty boring. I mean, well, <clears throat> it is Elon consider Musk. Consider the source. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, not surprisingly, apparently, people that were long doggy coin didn't like it either because that <laughs> coin was down like 40% um, pretty much after SNL was over. So, But Ethereum, which is the second largest cryptocurrency, is now hit an all-time record. It's over $4,000 a coin as of last night. So that surged just in the last month over 100%. So again, it's just, uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation in these cryptocurrency markets right now. And of course, that's really what's been uh, kind of driving that. It's just really the pure speculation of it. Okay, so real quick, about the markets here uh, before we get to the show. Um, over the course of the last week, we finally broke out of this consolidation range, very close to triggering a money flow buy signal. We will get that signal today. Uh, again, if the market remains up today, it looks like the Dow's going to open about 113 points this morning. S&P is going to be up about three or four. So not strong open, but if we can finish up today on a positive note, we will trigger that money flow buy signal. Very close behind that, a uh, couple of days of rally this week, we could actually trigger the MACD as well, get kind of a confirming signal here. And that's going to give us potential lift here over the course of the next couple of weeks. This is likely going to be a very short-lived signal because as we start looking at our weekly indicators, they are getting very overbought here. So again, 
probably have three or two to three to four weeks of uh, potential market upside here. As we get more into late May, June, I would expect to see some more weakness here. Now, what, what's going to trigger that? You don't know, but <clears throat> probably some more disappointing economic news, et cetera. And plus, just the fact that we're starting to push into summer. Markets are extremely extended from long-term means. You have some technical deviations as well that suggest you're going to have a correction sometime this summer. How big, how much, how exactly when, don't know what's going to cause it, not sure. But just kind of how markets cycle over time, just pay attention to that. So again, there is some upside here. Not a lot of, of point here to chase markets at this point. But there is some upside here uh, momentarily, probably limited. But as we get further into summer, I think that's where we're going to see a little bit more risk pick up. So, but we'll keep you up to date on this as well um, as we go along. And of course, uh, every week on our Technically Speaking uh, uh, reports that we send out by email, we'll talk about that as well as our weekly newsletter where we talk about all of our positioning. Subscribe to our newsletter on the website right now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Just simply click the newsletter link, put your email address in, and we will put you on our email list and send you both those reports every single week. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, and we'll be right back for more of The Real Investment Show right after this. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the Internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Real Investment Advice. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. It's uh, 617. If, uh, you know, we were talking about yesterday that... You know, the government's getting ready to release all this uh, UFO data, mm -hmm. right? And uh, <laughs> Wisconsin police have now told their residents, please do not call 911 if you see a string of lights in the sky. <laughs> uh, that's, so apparently the uh, Starlink satellite train, it's the, the, yeah. the group of satellites that provide uh, internet service to rural areas. So as it circumvents the globe, it shows up as a string of lights in the sky they don't want people calling 911 saying there's ufo invasion so it'll melt down you know i would just if see if i was on a radio station there in like wisconsin as soon as i knew that was coming over i'd start playing orson wells uh, more of the world <laughs> yep just you know just cut into the radio broadcast and just start playing more of the worlds and then <laughs> people go outside anyway and that's why you're not on the radio in know, Wisconsin. Exactly. That's why they won't let me on. You know, this is a good thing, too. You know, 7% of the population does not use the Internet. According really? to a recent survey, 7% of the population does not use the Internet hmm. in the U.S. Interesting. Yeah. And that probably means that when the end of the world comes, there'll be 7% of the population that actually survives. <laughs> yeah. So... 
or at there's, least won't know there, about it. There's hope yet that the intelligence, <laughs> there is intelligent life on the planet. You know, and then that the funniest thing is that we now have access to all this information, right? I mean, you want to know anything about math or science or, you know, anything, right? It's, it's right there on the Internet. It seems like we should be the, the smartest race ever in history. And we've gotten dumber. <laughs> Especially in the U.S., we went from the top three in math and science and, and education to like the mid-30s. I mean, Estonia has better education than we do. I mean, <laughs> most, how is that possible? Most people don't even know where Estonia is. I know, right? That, how is that even possible? You have the world map on your hand in your phone. How are you more stupid than you were a decade ago? But boy, can you insult somebody you don't know in a <laughs> nanosecond. Exactly. You can block people for just no reason whatsoever. <laughs> Sorry, did you get your feet wings hurt? I'll block you. <laughs> anyway. Stuff that goes on in the mornings. Uh, all right. Couple of things. <laughs> back to back to serious enough here. Uh, okay. Inflation. One of the, the big kind of concerns here right now is that, you know, this inf inflation issue that's coming and whether or not, you know, this is a sustainable rate of inflation or if this is a transitory inflation. Now, the Fed keeps coming out saying this is transitory and the Fed's probably right. A lot of this has to do with supply chain bottlenecks and temporary um, positions in the economy where there's, you know, as we kind of reopen, there's a demand for goods and services, et cetera, uh, that's causing a demand to outstrip supply. So there's also the other problem that when we look at measures of inflation, we're about to see a very, very sharp spike in inflation. I mean, like people are going to be saying, oh, hyperinflation is back. Well, you got to be careful with part of this is because of the way we measure inflation, it's a year over year rate of change. And we're now in the phase of this year where we're comparing to the very deflationary blowout of last year when we shut down the economy. So when you compare year-over-year -year growth rates in inflation, they're going to be huge. And that's just because of this way that we calculate inflation. Then there's also all the problems of how we actually calculate inflation, right? We've talked about that before as well. But... Look, we've, we've had massive increases in used car prices, big increases in home prices. You know, that's all filtering through to inflation. And so we have this kind of this, this combination of events where we have a surge in prices due to a lack of supply. And then we have this year-over-year -year comparison, which is inflating, at least on the surface. It, it appears to have be this inflation phenomenon. And, of course, everybody's running out going, oh, we're back to the 1970s. Very different environment that we have now versus the 1970s. Now, having said that, doesn't mean the outcomes won't be the same. And what I mean by that is, is that if you go back to the 70s, we had double back-to-back -back uh, recessions as we had this inflationary spike going on. And, and, and that's not surprising because if inflation goes up and prices are going up and people can't afford to pay it, they contract their spending. That leads to an economic recession, right? So those, those do definitely play hand in hand. And we could very well see this kind of this phenomenon of a very short cycle expansion 
I'm not saying that I'm not saying this is going to be the case. Don't run out and start telling people, well, Lance says a recession's coming next year. I'm not saying that. But it is possible that because the recession that happened in 2020 was artificial in nature. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we shut down the economy. We caused the recession. It wasn't a naturally occurring recession of a slowdown of the business cycle. We shut the economy down. But we didn't solve the underlying problems of the economy itself that recessions normally deal with. In fact, we exacerbated them by flooding the system with liquidity. We've actually exacerbated some of the problems that recessions normally remove from the system. And that's the whole benefit of a recession is it kind of resets the table for the next economic growth cycle. So when we look at this, and think about what's happening. You know, it's very possible that we could see the economy actually slip back into a recession in a normal business cycle because of inflationary pressures. Inflation rises sharply, curtails spending. You get a, you get an economic slowdown because of the curtailment of spending because of higher prices, and you kind of go through that cycle. So that certainly is not outside the realm of possibility. You shouldn't discount that entirely. Just say, oh, well, you just had a recession. Can't have another one. It's possible because the recession was artificial and it was not allowed to work the process of a recession, which is, and particularly when it comes to markets, reverting valuations. So certainly risk out there. But again, a lot of this inflation that you're going to see in the near term over the next couple of months in particular, you're going to see a very sharp spike in inflation. That's going to be caused by this, a lot of this is going to be this year-over-year comparison. So it's going to be important when you look at these numbers to make sure and step back and go, okay, what was inflation last year? Where are we now? And what's the trend of inflation? And and try to keep these things in in somewhat of a perspective because some of the numbers you're going to see are are going to be quite mind-boggling because they're going to be so big. But again, those are likely going to fade fairly quickly because once we get into the latter part of this year, so we get into September, October, November, December, where the economy was already starting to reopen, those year-over-year comparisons are going to drop rather sharply. And then we get to 2022, we're going to be heading back towards trend growth of inflation somewhere around 2.2 to 2.5%, somewhere around there. So again, and, and this, is, this is the risk that the Fed runs right now. The Fed's playing a very delicate balance. They're worried about inflation because if inflation spikes too much, then that does curtail the economy and it causes a recession. That's why they're worried about inflation. So the game that they're running right now is saying, hey, we're doing QE, $120 billion a month, and hopefully that'll be enough that we can let inflation run hot here for a few months. Even if it slows the economy down some, that's okay because we're providing enough liquidity to offset that risk temporarily. And then hopefully that rate of inflation will die off and we won't have to raise rates or reduce our QE. So kind of we can kind of navigate our way through it. That's their plan, right? That's what they hope anyway. The question will be whether or not that they have the stomach for it or that they don't make a policy mistake by starting to, you know, they've already started talking about potentially tapering QE or they don't actually flinch and, and hike rates into a temporary bout of inflation. 
if it if it indeed indeed is that. Now, look, there's arguments out there that says this inflation can be permanent for quite a while longer. And that's certainly got some valid cases to it, right? There, there are quite a few uh, voices out there saying this inflation is here to stay for a while because of all the shortages, right? We've got semiconductor shortages. We've got auto shortages. We've got shortages of food. We've got shortages of everything, right? Because of the supply chain shutdowns, et cetera. Which their argument is, is because of that, we can have this inflation stick around for longer than we expect. And there's certainly validity to that argument. Do not discount that argument. Because they're right. The shortage is a problem. So the, the, the shortages become an issue of how fast we can get those production lines back up to work. And start meeting the demand that is currently available in the markets because of this reopening that we're going through. So if inflation stays around longer and runs hotter than the Fed expects, then the Fed gets themselves into a potential trap of hiking rates. And that's where the potential policy mistake comes in. And so the, the question is really timing. What the Fed's hoping on is that they can keep rates at zero and keep doing QE and we'll have a very short spike in inflation and it'll fade back in latter part of this year, first part of next year, we'll be back towards more more kind of trend line 2% inflation. The, the risk, as I said, is that inflation runs too hot and because of the shortage runs longer than the Fed can stomach. That's where the potential policy risk comes in that impacts the markets. We'll see what happens. Come back from the break. We're going to talk a little bit about picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Um, article out today on the website talking specifically about this. So simply go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, you can download the article, read it for yourself. But I'll go through a couple of the charts that we have, and uh, we'll talk about that when we come back from the break. I'm Real Science Roberts. Don't go away. Should I stay or should I go? It's always TCC. You're happy when I'm on my knees. One day it's fine and next is black. So if you want me off your back, well, come on and let me know. Should I stay or should I go? The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to the real investment show carry on my wayward son there'll be peace when you are done lay your weary head to rest don't you cry no more And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. You know, if young people would just listen to our podcast, we could save them a lot of angst. And maybe a lot of money. And some money. But, you know, we're boomers, so yeah, they don't uh, listen to us. Okay, right? boomer. Yeah, exactly. 
But, you know, we've tried to warn them about things like Dogecoin, which has now gotten cremated because they were like, oh, if you're in Bitcoin, that's boomer coin, right? Well, maybe you should go where the boomers are because they're going to save you some money. Why? Because of experience. One of the things that we talked about from time to time on the show is, is that buying houses are not an investment. The National Association of Home Builders, the, the, the National Association of Realtors, they do a great job of promoting the value of home ownership. And they, you know, they team up with the financial media and they, they get them to put out these stories about how investing in a house is, a, is part of your investment structure. And you should, you should buy a home because it's part of your kind of your asset value. And look, there, there is a truth to that, that, you know, a house is an asset, right, on your balance sheet. And there's also a liability attached to it called the mortgage. But as we've talked about, what you always hear, and this is, this is what's called the anchoring effect. People always hear the stories about, oh, I bought this house for $100,000. I sold it for $150,000. Oh, you know, I held it for like 10 years. Sold it for $150,000. I made all this, cra- I made crazy money owning this house. No, you didn't. Because we always forget to back out all the other crap we got to play with owning a house. You know, property taxes, school taxes, maintenance, upkeep, you know, all, you know, <laughs> just all that stuff. And what any homeowner will tell you is that it's expensive to own a home. Oh, I forgot HOA fees. Yeah. Got to get, get those criminals in there. Should be a law against HOAs. But because I'm not sure they actually do what they're supposed to do and they just collect a crap load of money. So anyway. It's interesting because, you know, we, we've warned people, look, look, should you, so let's back the story up real quick. Should you buy a house? Yes. When? When you can afford it. Well, when can you afford it? When you have all your other stuff paid for and you're not up to your eyeballs and student loan debt and automobile debt and this debt and credit card debt out the wazoo, you buy a house when you can afford it. When the monthly payment is not impacting your overall lifestyle. And you can afford to still make your savings goals every month. And that's the important key. You buy a house, so you should be saving about 30% of your income every month. So you get a paycheck, 30% of it should go away to your savings accounts, investments, whatever, right? If you can afford a house payment after your 30% savings, then you can afford a house. If you can't, you can't. Because when you buy that house, now you got to pay for all the other stuff that goes along with it. And this is what millennials are finding out. Survey out over the uh, over the weekend. Of course, you know, a lot of millennials ran out and they bought houses after the pandemic shutdown. It's like, oh my gosh, I live in an apartment. Now we're shut down. I got to be locked up. I can't be locked up in this apartment. I'm going to buy a house. And of course, we've had this massive rush up in houses and prices. And so people are scrambling to buy a house and they're overpaying for the houses by large amounts of money just to try to get into a house. In fact, they're buying them sight unseen. <laughs> One recent survey found that millennials who decided to take advantage, I'm reading this, by the way, um, of low mortgage rates and buy a home during the COVID pandemic have mostly come to regret their decision. 
A survey from Bankrate pointed out buyers' regrets are even more of a factor in the pandemic as agents compete with even more ruth- even more ruthlessly to complete deals. Leave it to the millennial generation to normalize buying a home sight unseen and waiving contingencies that might have allowed them to escape problems when they emerged. Now, a, a, a boomer <laughs> would tell you to never waive contingencies on buying a piece of real estate, much less buying one site unseen. But, you know, we're just boomers. We haven't done this before. Yeah, what, 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 you know, we just have experience, right? What do we know? We've done all, this is what I tell my kids all the time too, right? My kids go do stuff. I was like, I've done that. Let me tell you how it's going to come out. And then when it comes out the way I told them it was going to come out, they, they're like, don't talk to me for like a month, right? Because <laughs> they don't want to hear I told you so. An interest, uh, also of interest, the survey found that generally speaking, older buyers had fewer complaints about their purchases. Perhaps that's reflect the fact that older people have a better idea of what they want and need. In total, 64% of millennial home buyers aged 25 to 40 have regrets about the purchase compared to just 33% of baby boomers ages 55, 57 to 75. By far, this is the, the point you should know. By far, the biggest regret among homeowners wasn't being unprepared. Uh, sorry, wasn't. Sorry, let me repeat that. I'll spit that out. By far, the biggest regret among recent home buyers was being unprepared for the cost of maintenance. More than 20% of millennial homeowners said they felt the cost of home ownership were just too high. And that number jumped to 26% among those between the ages of 25 and 31. Um, yeah, again, you start getting all the additional taxes and fees and everything else. And all of a sudden you're going, hey, I don't have kids. Why am I paying school taxes? Yeah, everybody pays them. <laughs> you know? This is why we need school choice. So your tax dollars can follow you around. That's a different story for a different day. Um, but this is, you know, this goes back to that very basic idea of understanding the basics of finance and what you're getting into. And, and again, owning a home is fine. Right. But people tout this as this idea that it's an asset. It's not an asset. And I'll tell you why it's not an asset. Hey, it's an expense. But yes, I buy a home today and it goes up in value. That's great. I sell that home. Where am I going to live? I'm going to move back into an apartment. I'm going to move into a trailer. What am I going to do? I'm generally going to sell that house and buy another house. And that house is inflated in value as well. So basically, I'm just rolling value over from one house to the next house because I have a place to live. I don't get to really extract that value to live on. It doesn't get to wind up in my bank account until after I die and my house is sold to my estate. Then it winds up in the family account for all the kids to have, right? Um, so... The, the growth of that asset really isn't a huge benefit for building retirement assets. It's not something you can live on down the road. It's not going to generate an income stream. Now, I'm not talking about rental properties. That's a different, that's, that's an asset, right? Rental properties are an investment and they are an asset because I have value, I have leverage, and I get an income stream from it as long as it's rented, right? So that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about home ownership. So keep these straight. But, you know, we have because of the marketing, Americans have been told it's like, oh, that's the American dream. No, that's not the American dream. The American dream is not home ownership. 
Okay, Lance, what is the American dream? The American dream is going out. You know, people didn't come across the seas, right, <laughs> to America to buy a house. That's not why they came here. They came here for opportunity to build something, right? They, they came here to start farms and ranches and, 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 and build wealth, right? Build prosperity. Buy a piece of land, right? Get a piece of land. But then use that to create wealth and prosperity, which is what a lot of people do. You hear stories all the time about people that came from India or Asia or wherever they came here with $5 in their pocket, and now they own a multi-million dollar company, right? Because they invested and they worked hard and they grew a business. That's the American dream. The American dream is about allowing capitalism to work and allowing people to create something that creates wealth. What is the symbol of the American dream? That's home ownership. I've created wealth, and from that wealth, I was able to buy property. My home. But see, we allow all the marketing in the in the world to come around and say, "Oh, you, you know, if you rent, you're a poor person. You've got to go buy a house." No, if I rent, I just pay rent. I don't have taxes, and you and. And, and homeowners fees and maintenance and upkeep. My, my sink breaks, I call the, the landlord and say, hey, come fix my sink, right? I've got a fixed cost to rent. Nothing wrong with renting. It's the best way to go to get started in life. Start building, getting rid of your debt, start building up savings, start building your investments. And when you can continue to save 30% of your income, it's like, well, it's just saving too much money. If you save 30% of your income, you will never worry about money ever because you're forced to live within a budget in order to save 30% of your income you've got to live in a fairly strict budget and when you do that you never worry about money you can't have a bunch of credit card debt and save 30% of your income can't do it but this is the problem we have distorted our standard of living in the US to where in order to buy a home these millennials are buying homes with like 3% down. We're making it worse for them by giving them easy, low-cost terms. Back in the day when Brent and I first bought houses, right? You had to have 20% down, perfect credit. There was no double mortgages. You had one mortgage and you had 20% down to qualify, but you had skin in the game. And to get to 20% down, you had to be able to save money, which means that you were financially responsible enough to save the down payment to own the house to start with. So, you know, while millennials and, and Gen Zers and people complain about the state of affairs of the economy and how capitalism sucks, a lot of this has to do with your own bad financial habits. Maybe we should start there. Be right back after the break. If I leave tomorrow. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at Real Invest investmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care june 24th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show
Welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Rose Lance Roberts. The IEA has come out with a new article. It's in the New York Times this morning. They've come out with a new report saying to reach climate goals, new oil and gas investment must be stopped, says the IEA. That's not good for Houston or Texas, by the way. Just uh, just saying. <laughs> um, got a question on uh, you, our YouTube uh, stream this morning. We appreciate you watching, of course. And if you didn't realize this, yes, you can watch the show live every day, both in real time and on recordings. If you go to our YouTube channel, simply go by realinvestmentadvice.com, click on the YouTube link, subscribe. We'll notify you of all of our podcasts. That includes our podcasts, our candid coffees, our lunch and learns, um, our three minutes on markets and money, the daily radio show. I mean, just we have a ton of content there for you. And we've got a lot of new stuff uh, as we rebuild our studio here over the next couple of months. Uh, we've got a lot of new stuff coming out, uh, new podcasts, etc., coming out uh, later this year. So make sure you subscribe to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the YouTube link. Very easy, painless, and you'll be all set up. And we'll notify you as we release new material every day. Um, question on YouTube this morning, um, how do I feel about stock buybacks and what does that mean? Um, so stock buybacks are back to a record, right? Companies are just hand over fist, Bookshire Hathaway, um, Apple announcing huge buybacks of stock. We've written articles on this. If you go to realinvestmentadvice.com and in the search bar top, just type in the word buybacks. Now, the, our search bar only searches our site. So if you have a, a question about some, some topic, if you go to our website and just type that in the search bar, a keyword buybacks, share repurchases as an example, um, it will search our site, pull up all of our articles, videos, anything else that we've got on our, that we've published about it on the website, whether it's mentioned in the title or in the body. Of, of the article it'll it'll pull it up and you can uh you know see what we've said about it before but here's the thing about share buybacks share buybacks are not a return of capital to shareholders let me get this clear with you why do i say that this is the belief that's put out by the media right a dividend is a return of capital to shareholders. Why? Because I own 100 shares of Apple. Apple pays a dividend. I get the dividend, and I own the Apple stock. In order for a buyback to be beneficial to me, right, I have to sell my shares. So it's not really returning capital. I can sell my shares on the open market any day of the week. Right. So a share buyback doesn't benefit me if I sell my shares back to the company. Right. It's just I just get the value of, of the of the day the, the shares are bought up or down. But I can do that any day of the week. So returning, you know, saying it's returning capital to me is not because all I'm doing is selling my ownership in the company. Who does it benefit? The SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, did a study on share buybacks and found that share buybacks benefit who? The most insiders. Why does it benefit insiders? Because insiders are granted stock by the corporation as part of their compensation package. And so when the price of the stock goes up, they sell those shares that were granted to them and that's how they generate wealth. And that's why there's such a big wealth gap between those that are in the corporate CEOs and corporate executives of companies and, and the workers, right? And a lot of it has to do with stock option-based compensation. That's a function, as we talked about before, of Bill Clinton's attempt at trying to limit CEO pay back in, 19, in the late 1990s. Here's the other problems with share buybacks. 
Share buybacks are the least best use of capital. In other words, what companies should be doing with capital is investing it in R&D, making acquisitions, gaining market share, increasing revenue, increasing income, those type of things. That's what you should be doing with capital, investing it. Share buybacks are a one-time boost to bottom line earnings. So I buy back, you know, uh, Wall Street says I need to generate a dollar's worth of earnings per share to meet estimates. Now, I know as a company and as the executives inside the company, I know that if I miss those earnings estimates, my stock's going to get punished, right? The value will go down. So I buy back shares of the company. I reduce the number of the the the. the the shares of the company so that when I calculate my earnings per share by reducing the denominator, I increase my earnings per share, right? I didn't make any more money, but it looks like I made more money at the bottom line of my accounting statement because I have a fewer number of shares outstanding. So that's how I can increase my EPS over time. I'm not any more profitable. I didn't make any more revenue. I didn't become a better company but I'm more profitable on an EPS basis because I reduce the number of shares outstanding. If you want to be really profitable, just buy back all your shares. See, that doesn't make any sense. So share buybacks are only beneficial, really, for two things. One, benefiting the insiders of the company, and two, meeting Wall Street estimates, which makes your shareholders happy. Okay? The problem, though, is... and is that share buybacks were illegal after the Depression until 1990. Why were they illegal? The reason they were illegal is that it, is, it was a form of stock market manipulation. Ha ha ha. <laughs> I'm buying back shares to inflate my asset price. That's stock market manipulation, right? So we all love it, right? So, so look, we all love the idea of share buybacks. More share buybacks they do. The higher the market goes, it's great while the market's going up. But it's not economically a good thing, right? You're not increasing productivity. You're not making capital investments into the economy, which creates economic growth, which creates more prosperity for workers. You're not doing the things with capital, which enhance your business, Share buybacks are almost parasitic to the overall economy because of the misuse of capital allocation and the rate of return on that capital that's being used. So, you know, we run around, we talk, and this is, look, and this is, this is why people think capitalism is broken. Capitalism is not broken. If you didn't have capitalism, you wouldn't have Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, you know, ExxonMobil. <laughs> you know, all these companies exist because of capitalism. The function of capitalism works. Small businesses in your neighborhood are a function of capitalism. Nothing is stopping you from going out and taking advantage of capitalism. If you want to make more than a quarter million dollars a year in revenue uh, or an in income, Right. If you want to be a higher income earner, go start a business because most of your business owners are the ones that have higher levels of income. It's very hard to achieve very high levels of income working for another company. It's not saying it can't be done, but it's very hard to do. 
It's it's. But if you want to go out and, and create success for yourself, go start a business. That's capitalism. But people go, well, capitalism's broken because look at the wealth gap, right? Look at all these evil rich people over here and the masses of, of poor people over here. Obviously, capitalism is broken, so we need more socialism. Capitalism isn't broken. Corporatism is the problem. I've got an article coming out on this, by the way, two-part two part article on this. Corporatism is the problem. And a good example of corporatism was during the March pandemic. For years, companies have been spending capital on share buybacks to enhance their, their bottom line and to en en enrichen their shareholders and enrichen their corporate executives. But as soon as they get in trouble, they run to the government with their hands out, going, well, Mr. Government, I need please a bailout because I don't have any money. Why don't you have any money? I spend it all on buybacks. Okay, sorry, too bad. Go sell some stock, go issue some debt, get yourself out of trouble because you got yourself into it. That's capitalism. Corporatism is where they run to the government and say, please, sir, I need a bailout or I won't give you any money for your next election. That's corporatism. And so what did we do? We bailed out all these companies. And as soon as we bailed out all these companies, Right. As soon as we bail them out and as soon as we send money out to all the people, we, we put another five trillion in debt on our books. What happens? They turn right around record stock buybacks again. The only reason they have all the money to do stock buybacks with because we just spent five trillion in debt, giving money to individuals to go spend at their companies buying new products. So now they're going, hey, we got all this money. This is awesome. Let's go do stock buybacks. In other words, what the government just did was the government just funded record stock buybacks on taxpayer money. It's a bit of a loop to get there, but that's how it got there. But we keep doing this over and over again. So, yeah, capitalism is broken on the surface, right? But it's not capitalism that's broken. The function of capitalism, which is Darwinistic in nature and parasitic. In other words, you know, the way the way capitalism works is. The strongest survive, the weak perish. That's the way capitalism works. Sorry, if you're on the weak side of it and you perish, too bad. That's capitalism. I know it sounds brutal, but that's how capitalism is. It's a brutal thing. You either want it or you don't. And if you don't want it, you will be eaten. That's capitalism. Corporatism is an entirely different thing. The problem we have today is corporatism. And if you want to fix corporatism, stop bailing them out. Wraps up the show for the day. <laughs> I got more, but we'll save it for later. <laughs> that stuff gets me fired up. All right, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Send us your questions, comments, emails, what we can do for you, let us know. And we'll be back tomorrow with Danny Ratliff right here on The Real Investment Show. Have a great day. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.